Chapter Sixteen, Part Twelve of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by HearHis.com. Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume Two, by John Fox, edited by William Bryan Forbush. Chapter Sixteen, Persecutions in England during the Reign of Queen Mary, Part Twelve. Queen Mary's Treatment of Her Sister, the Princess Elizabeth. The preservation of Princess Elizabeth may be reckoned a remarkable instance of the watchful eye which Christ had over his church. The bigotry of Mary regarded not the ties of consanguinity, of natural affection, of natural succession. Her mind, physically morose, was under the dominion of men who possessed not the milk of human kindness, and whose principles were sanctioned and enjoined by the idolatrous tenets of the Romish pontiff. Could they have foreseen the short date of Mary's reign, they would have imbrued their hands in the Protestant blood of Elizabeth, and, as a sine qua non of the Queen's salvation, have compelled her to bequeath the kingdom to some Catholic prince. The contest might have been attended with the horrors incidental to the religious civil war, and calamities might have been felt in England similar to those under Henry the Great in France, whom Queen Elizabeth assisted in opposing his priest-ridden Catholic subjects. As if Providence had the perpetual establishment of the Protestant faith in view, the difference of the duration of the two reigns is worthy of notice. Mary might have reigned many years in the course of nature, but the course of grace willed it otherwise. Five years and four months was the time of persecution allotted to this weak, disgraceful reign, while that of Elizabeth reckoned a number of years among the highest of those who have sat on the English throne, almost nine times that of her merciless sister. Before Mary attained the crown, she treated Elizabeth with a sisterly kindness, but from that period her conduct was altered, and the most imperious distance substituted. Though Elizabeth had no concern in the rebellion of Sir Thomas Wyatt, yet she was apprehended and treated as a culprit in that commotion. The manner, too, of her arrest was similar to the mind and dictated it. The three cabinet members, whom she deputed to see the arrest executed, rudely entered the chamber at ten o'clock at night, and, though she was extremely ill, they could scarcely be induced to let her remain until the following morning. Her enfeebled state permitted her to be moved only by short stages in a journey of such length to London. But the princess, though afflicted in person, had a consolation in mind which her sister never could purchase. The people, through whom she passed on her way, pitied her and put up their prayers for her preservation. Arrived at court, she was made a close prisoner for a fortnight, without knowing who was her accuser or seeing anyone who could console or advise her. The charge, however, was at length unmasked by Gardiner, who, with nineteen of the council, accused her of abetting Wyatt's conspiracy, which she religiously affirmed to be false. Failing in this, they placed against her the transactions of St. Peter Carew in the West, in which they were as unsuccessful as in the former. The Queen now signified that it was her pleasure she should be committed to the tower, a step which overwhelmed the princess with the greatest alarm and uneasiness. In vain she hoped the queen's majesty would not commit her to such a place, 
but there was no lenity to be expected. Her attendants were limited, and a hundred northern soldiers appointed to guard her day and night. On Palm Sunday she was conducted to the tower. When she came to the palace garden, she cast her eyes toward the windows, eagerly anxious to meet those of the queen, but she was disappointed. A strict order was given in London that everyone should go to church and carry palms, that she might be conveyed without clamor or commiseration to her prison. At the time of passing under London Bridge, the fall of the tide made it very dangerous, and the barge sometimes struck fast against the starlings. To mortify her the more, she was landed at Trader's Stairs. As it rained fast, and she was obliged to step in the water to land, she hesitated, but this excited no complacence in the Lord-in-waiting. When she set her foot on the steps, she exclaimed, Here lands as true a subject, being prisoner, as ever landed at these stairs, and before thee, O God, I speak it, having no friend but thee alone. A large number of the wardens and servants of the tower were arranged in order between whom the princess had to pass. Upon inquiring the use of this parade, she was informed it was customary to do so. If, said she, it is on the count of me, I beseech you, that they may be dismissed. On this the poor men knelt down, and prayed that God would preserve her grace, for which they were the next day turned out for their employments. The tragic scene must have been deeply interesting, to see an amiable and irreproachable princess sent like a lamb to languish in expectancy of cruelty and death, against whom there was no other charge than her superiority in Christian virtues and acquired endowments. Her attendants openly wept as she proceeded with a dignified step to the frowning battlements of her destination. Alas, said Elizabeth, what do you mean? I took you to comfort, not to dismay me, for my truth is such that no one shall have cause to weep for me. The next step of her enemies was to procure evidence by means which, in the present day, are accounted detestable. Many poor prisoners were racked to extract, if possible, any matters of accusation which might affect her life, and thereby gratify Gardiner's sanguinary disposition. He himself came to examine her, expecting her removal from the house at Ashbridge to Dunnington Castle a long while before. The princess had quite forgotten this trivial circumstance, and Lord Arundel, after the investigation, kneeling down, apologized for having troubled her in such a frivolous matter. You sift me narrowly, replied the princess, but of this I am assured that God has appointed a limit to your proceedings, and so God forgive you all. Her own gentlemen, who ought to have been her purveyors, and served her provision, were compelled to give place to the common soldiers at the command of the constable of the tower. Who was in every respect a servile tool of gardener, her grace's friends, however, procured an order of counsel which regulated this petty tyranny more to her satisfaction. After having been a whole month in close confinement, she sent for the Lord Chamberlain and Lord Chandos, to whom she represented the ill state of her health from want of proper air and exercise. Application being made to the council, Elizabeth was with some difficulty admitted to walk in the Queen's lodgings, and afterwards in the garden, 
at which time the prisoners on that side were attended by their keepers, and not suffered to look down upon her. Their jealousy was excited by a child of four years, who daily brought flowers to the princess. The child was threatened with a whipping, and the father ordered to keep him from the princess's chambers. On the 5th of May, the constable was discharged from his office, and Sir Henry Binnefield, appointed in his room, accompanied by a hundred ruffian-looking soldiers in blue. This measure greeted considerable alarm in the mind of the princess, who imagined it was preparatory to her undergoing the same fate as Lady Jane Grey, upon the same block. Assured that this project was not in agitation, she entertained an idea that the new keeper of the tower was commissioned to make away with her privately, as his equivocal character was in conformity with the ferocious inclination by those whom he was appointed. A report now obtained that her grace was to be taken away by the new constable and his soldiers, which in the sequel proved to be true. An order of counsel was made for her removal to the manor Woodstock, which took place on Trinity Sunday, May 13th, under the authority of Sir Henry Binnefield and Lord Tame. The ostensible cause for her removal was to make room for other prisoners. Richmond was the first place they stopped at, and here the princess slept, not, however, without much alarm at first, as her own servants were superseded by the soldiers, who were placed as guards at her chamber door. Upon representation, Lord Tame overruled this indecent stretch of power, and granted her perfect safety while under his custody. In passing through Windsor, she saw several of her poor dejected servants waiting to see her. "'Go to them,' said she to one of her attendants, "'and say these words from me, "'Tanquim ovis,' that is, like a sheep to the slaughter. The next night her grace lodged at the house of Mr. Dormer, in her way, to which the people manifested such tokens of loyal affection that Sir Henry was indignant, and bestowed on them very liberally the names of rebels and traitors. In some villages they rang the bells for joy, imagining the princess' arrival among them was from a very different cause. But this harmless demonstration of gladness was sufficient with the persecuting Bannefield to order his soldiers to seize and set these humble persons in the stocks. The following day her grace arrived at Lord Tame's house, where she stayed all night and was most nobly entertained. This excited Sir Henry's indignation, and made him caution Lord Tame to look well to his proceedings. But the humility of Lord Tame was not to be frightened, and he returned a suitable reply. At another time, this official prodigal, to show his consequence and disregard of good manners, went up into a chamber where was appointed for her grace a chair, two cushions, and a foot-carpet, wherein he presumptuously set and called his man to pull off his boots. As soon as it was known to the ladies and gentlemen, they laughed him to scorn. When supper was done, he called to his lordship and directed that all gentlemen and ladies should withdraw home, marveling much that he would permit such a large company, considering the great charge he had committed to him. "'Sir Henry,' said his lordship, "'content yourself, and all shall be avoided, your men and all.' "'Nay, but my soldiers,' replied Sir Henry, "'shall watch all night.' Lord Tame answered, "'There is no need.' "'Well,' said he, Need or need not, they shall so do.
The next day her grace took her journey from thence to Woodstock, where she was enclosed, as before, in the Tower of London, the soldiers keeping guard within and without the walls every day to the number of sixty, and in the night without the walls were forty during the time of her imprisonment. At length she was permitted to walk in the gardens, but under the most severe restrictions, Sir Henry keeping the keys himself and placing her always under many bolts and locks, whence she was induced to call him her jailer, at which he felt offended, and begged her to substitute the word officer. After much earnest entreaty to the council, she obtained permission to write to the queen, but the jailer, who brought her pen, ink, and paper, stood by her while she wrote, and, when she left off, he carried the things away until they were wanted again. He also insisted upon carrying it himself to the queen, but Elizabeth would not suffer him to be the bearer, and it was presented by one of her gentlemen. After the letter, doctors Owen and Windy went to the princess, as the state of her health rendered medical assistance necessary. They stayed with her five or six days, in which time she grew much better. They then returned to the queen, and spoke flatteringly of the princess's submission and humility, at which the queen seemed moved, but the bishops wanted a concession that she had offended her majesty. Elizabeth spurned this indirect mode of acknowledging herself guilty. "'If I have offended,' said she, "'and am guilty, I crave no mercy but the law, which I am certain I should have had ere this, if anything could have been proved against me. I wish I were as clear from the peril of mine enemies. Then should I not be thus bolted and locked up within these walls and doors?' Much question arose at this time respecting the propriety of uniting the princess to some foreigner, that she might quit the realm with a suitable portion. One of the council had the brutality to urge the necessity of beheading her, if the king, Philip, meant to keep the realm in peace. But the Spaniards, detesting such a base thought, replied, "'God forbid that our king and master should consent to such an infamous proceeding!' Stimulated by a noble principle, the Spaniards from this time repeatedly urged to the king that it would do him the highest honor to liberate the Lady Elizabeth. Nor was the king impervious to their solicitation. He took her out of prison, and shortly after she was sent for to Hampton Court. It may be remarked in this place that the fallacy of human reasoning is shown in every moment. The barbarian, who suggested the policy of beheading Elizabeth, little contemplated the change of condition which his speech would bring about. In her journey from Woodstock, Benefield treated her with the same severity as before, removing her on a stormy day, and not suffering her old servant, who had come to Colnbrook, where she slept, to speak to her. She remained a fortnight strictly guarded and watched, before any one dared to speak with her, at length the vile gardener, with three more of the council, came with great submission. Elizabeth saluted them, remarked that she had been for a long time kept in solitary confinement, and begged that they would intercede with the king and queen to deliver her from prison. Gardiner's visit was to draw from the princess a confession of her guilt, but she was guarded against this subtlety, adding that rather than admit she had done wrong, she would lie in prison all the rest of her life. The next day Gardiner came again, 
and kneeling down declared that the queen was astonished she would persist in affirming that she was blameless, whence it would be inferred that the queen had unjustly imprisoned her grace. Gardiner further informed her that the queen had declared that she must tell another tale before she could be set at liberty. Then, replied the high-minded Elizabeth, I had rather be in prison with honesty and truth than have my liberty, and be suspect by her majesty. What I have said I will stand to, nor will I ever speak falsehood. The bishop and his friends then departed, leaving her locked up as before. Seven days after, the queen sent for Elizabeth at ten o'clock at night. Two years had elapsed since they had seen each other. It created terror in the mind of the princess, who, at setting out, desired her gentlemen and ladies to pray for her, as her return to them again was uncertain. Being conducted to the queen's bedchamber, upon entering it, the princess knelt down, and having begged to God to preserve her majesty, she humbly assured her that her majesty had not a more loyal subject in the realm, whatever reports might be circulated to the contrary. With a haughty ungraciousness, the imperious queen replied, You will not confess your offense, but stand stoutly to your truth. I pray God it may so fall out. If it do not, said Elizabeth, I request neither favor nor pardon at your majesty's hands. Well, said the queen, you stiffly still persevere in your truth. Besides, you will not confess that you have not been wrongfully punished. I must not say so, if it please your majesty, to you. Why, then, said the queen, belike you will to others? No, if it please your majesty, I have borne the burden, and must bear it. I humbly beseech your majesty to have a good opinion of me, and to think me to be your subject, not only from the beginning, hitherto, but forever, as long as life lasteth. They departed without any heartfelt satisfaction on either side, nor can we think the conduct of Elizabeth displayed that independence and fortitude which accompanies perfect innocence. Elizabeth's admitting that she would not say, neither to the queen nor to others, that she had been unjustly punished, was in direct contradiction to what she had told Gardiner, and must have arisen from some motive at this time inexplicable. King Philip is supposed to have been secretly concealed during the interview, and to have been friendly to the princess. In seven days from the time of her return to prisonment, her severe jailer and his men were discharged, and she was set at liberty, under the constraint of being always attended and watched by some of the queen's council. Four of her gentlemen were sent to the tower without any other charge against them than being zealous servants of their mistress. This event was soon after followed by the happy news of Gardiner's death, for which all good and merciful men glorified God, insomuch as it had taken the chief tiger from the den, and rendered the life of the Protestant successor of Mary more secure. This miscreant, while the princess was in the tower, sent a secret writ, signed by a few of the council, for her private execution, and, had Mr. Bridges, lieutenant of the tower, been as little scrupulous of dark assassination as this pious prelate was, she must have perished. The warrant, not having the queen's signature, 
Mr. Bridges hastened to Her Majesty to give her information of it, and to know her mind. This was a plot of Winchester's, who, to convict her of treasonable practices, caused several prisoners to be racked, particularly Mr. Edmund Tremaine and Smithwick, were offered considerable bribes to accuse the guiltless princess. Her life was several times in danger. While at Woodstock, fire was apparently put between the boards and ceiling under which she lay. It was also reported strongly that one Paul Penny, the keeper of Woodstock, a notorious ruffian, was appointed to assassinate her. But, however this might be, God counteracted in this point the nefarious designs of the enemies of the Reformation. James Bassett was another appointed to perform the same deed. He was a particular favorite of Gardiner, and had come within a mile of Woodstock, intending to speak with Benefield on the subject. The goodness of God, however, so ordered it that while Bassett was traveling to Woodstock, Benefield, by an order of counsel, was going to London, in consequence of which he left a positive order with his brother that no man should be admitted to the princess during his absence, not even with a note from the queen. His brother met the murderer, but the latter's intention was frustrated, as no admission could be obtained. When Elizabeth quitted Woodstock, she left the following lines written with her diamond on the window. Much suspected by me, nothing proved can be, quoth Elizabeth, prisoner. With the life of Winchester ceased the extreme danger of the princess, as many of her other secret enemies soon had followed him, and, last of all, her cruel sister, who outlived Gardiner but three years. The death of Mary was ascribed to several causes. The council endeavored to console her in her last moments, imagining it was the absence of her husband that lay heavy at her heart. But though his treatment had some weight, the loss of Calais, the last fortress possessed by the English in France, was the true source of her sorrow. "'Open my heart,' said Mary. "'When I am dead, you will find Calais written there.'" Religion caused her no alarm. The priest had lulled to rest every misgiving of conscience, which might have obtruded on account of the accusing spirits of the murdered martyrs. Not the blood she had spilled, but the loss of a town excited her emotions in dying, and this last stroke seemed to be awarded that her fanatical persecution might be paralleled by her political imbecility. We earnestly pray that the annals of no country, Catholic or pagan, may ever be stained with such a repetition of human sacrifices to papal power, and that the detestation in which the character of Mary is holden may be a beacon to succeeding monarchs to avoid the rocks of fanaticism. God's Punishment Upon Some of the Persecutors of His People in Mary's Reign After that arch-persecutor Gardiner was dead, others followed, of whom Dr. Morgan, Bishop of St. David's, who succeeded Bishop Farrar, is to be noticed. Not long after he was installed in his bishoporic, he was stricken by the visitation of God. His food passed through the throat, but rose again with great violence. In this manner, almost literally starved to death, he terminated his existence. Bishop Thornton, suffragan of Dover, was an 
indefatigable persecutor of the true church. One day, after he had exercised his cruel tyranny upon a number of pious persons at Canterbury, he came from the chapter-house of Bourne, where, as he stood on a Sunday looking at his men playing at bowls, he fell down in a fit of the palsy, and did not long survive. After the latter succeeded another bishop, or suffragan, ordained by Gardner, who, not long after he had been raised to the see of Dover, fell down a pair of stairs in the cardinal's chamber at Greenwich, and broke his neck. He had just received the cardinal's blessing. He could receive nothing worse. John Cooper of Watson, Suffolk, suffered by perjury. He was from Private Peak persecuted by one Finning, who suborned two others to swear that they had heard Cooper say, If God did not take away Queen Mary, the devil would. Cooper denied all such words, but Cooper was a Protestant and a heretic, and therefore he was hung, drawn, and quartered, his property confiscated, and his wife and nine children reduced to beggary. The following harvest, however, Grimwood of Hitcham, one of the witnesses before mentioned, was visited for his villainy. While at work stacking up corn, his bowels suddenly burst out, and before relief could be obtained, he died. Thus was deliberate perjury rewarded by sudden death. In the case of the martyr Mr. Bradford, the severity of Mr. Sheriff Woodruff has been noticed. He rejoiced at the death of the saints, and at Mr. Rogers' execution he broke the carman's head because he stopped the cart to let the martyr's children take a last farewell of him. Scarcely had Mr. Woodruff's sheriffality expired a week when he was struck with a paralytic affection and languished a few days in the most pitiable and hopeless condition, presenting a striking contrast to his former activity in the cause of blood. Ralph Lardron, who betrayed the martyr George Eagles, is believed to have been afterward arraigned and hanged in consequence of accusing himself. At the bar he denounced himself in these words, This has most justly fallen upon me, for betraying the innocent blood of that just and good man George Eagles, who was here condemned in the time of Queen Mary by my procurement, when I sold his blood for a little money. As James Abbeys was going to execution, and exhorting the pitying bystanders to adhere steadfastly to the truth, and like him to seal the cause of Christ with their blood, a servant of the sheriffs interrupted him, and blasphemously called his religion heresy, and the good man a lunatic. Scarcely, however, had the flames reached the martyr, before the fearful stroke of God fell upon the hardened wretch, in the presence of him he had so cruelly ridiculed. The man was suddenly seized with lunacy, cast off his clothes and shoes before the people, as Abbeys had done just before, to distribute among some poor persons, at the same time exclaiming, Thus did James Abbeys, the true servant of God, who is saved by I am damned. Repeating this often, the sheriff had him secured and made him put his clothes on, but no sooner was he alone than he tore them off and exclaimed as before. Being tied in a cart, he was conveyed to his master's house, and in about half a year he died. 
just before which a priest came to attend him with the crucifix etc but the wretched man bade him take away such trumpery and said that he and the other priest had been the cause of his damnation but that abbeys was saved one clark an avowed enemy of the protestants in king edward's reign hung himself in the tower of london Frawling, a priest of much celebrity fell down in the street and died on the spot dale an infatigable informer was consumed by vermin and died a miserable spectacle alexander the severe keeper of newgate died miserably swelling to a prodigious size and became so inwardly putrid that none could come near him this cruel minister of the law would go to bonner story and others requesting them to rid his prison he was so much pestered with heretics the son of this keeper in three years after his father's death dissipated his great property and died suddenly in newgate market the sins of the father says the decalogue shall be visited on the children john peter son-in-law of alexander a horrid blasphemer and prosecutor died wretchedly when he affirmed anything he would say if it be not true i pray i may rot ere i die this awful state visited him in all its loathsomeness sir ralph elliker was eagerly desirous to see the heart taken out of adam damplip who was wrongfully put to death shortly after sir ralph was slain by the french who mangled him dreadfully cut off his limbs and tore his heart out when gardiner heard of the miserable end of judge hales he called the profession of the gospel a doctrine of desperation but he forgot that the judge's despondency arose after he had consented to the papistry but with more reason may this be said of the catholic tenets if we consider the miserable end of dr pendleton gardiner and the most of the leading persecutors gardiner upon his deathbed was reminded by a bishop of peter denying his master ah said gardiner i have denied with peter but never repented with peter after the accession of elizabeth most of the catholic prelates were imprisoned in the tower or the fleet bonner was put into the marsalia of the revilers of god's word we detail among many others the following occurrence one william maldone living in greenwich in servitude was instructing himself profitably in reading an english primer one winter's evening a serving man named john powell sat by and ridiculed all that maldone said who cautioned him not to make a jest of the word of god powell nevertheless continued until maldone came to a certain english prayers and read aloud quote, lord have mercy upon us christ have mercy upon us etc suddenly the reviler started and exclaimed lord have mercy upon us he was struck with the utmost terror of mind said the evil spirit could not abide that christ should have any mercy upon him and sunk into madness he was remitted to bedlam and became an awful warning that god will not always be insulted with impunity henry smith a student in the law had a pious protestant father of canban in gloucestershire by whom he was virtuously educated 
while studying law in the middle temple he was induced to profess catholicism and going to lovian in france he returned with pardons crucifixes and a great fright of popish toys not content with these things he openly reviled the gospel religion he had been brought up in but conscious one night reproached him so dreadfully that in a fit of despair he hung himself in his garters he was buried in a lane without the christian service being read over him dr story whose name has been so often mentioned in the preceding pages was reserved to be cut off by public execution a practice in which he had taken great delight when in power he is supposed to have had a hand in most of the conflagrations of mary's time and was even ingenuous in his invention of new modes of inflicting torture when elizabeth came to the throne he was committed to prison but unaccountability effected his escape to the continent to carry fire and sword there among the protestant brethren from the duke of alva at antwerp he received a special commission to search all ships for contraband goods and particularly for english heretical books dr story gloried in a commission that was ordered by providence to be his ruin and to preserve the faithful from his sanguinary cruelty it was contrived that one parker a merchant should sail to antwerp and information should be given to dr story that he had a quantity of heretical books on board the latter no sooner heard this than he hastened to the vessel sought everywhere above and then went under the hatches which were fashioned down upon him a prosperous gale brought the ship to england and this traitorous prosecuting rebel was committed to prison where he remained a considerable time obstinately rejecting to recant his anti-christian spirit or admit of queen elizabeth's supremacy he alleged though by birth and education an englishman that he was a sworn subject of the king of spain in whose service the famous duke of alva was the doctor being condemned was laid upon a hurdle and drawn from the tower to tyburn where after being suspended about half an hour he was cut down stripped and the executioner displayed the heart of a traitor thus ended the existence of this nimrod of england end of chapter 16 recording by herehis.com